Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us for today's show. On the episode today, we've got Ben Folks, the longtime MMA journalist. He's been covering the sport since 2006. He's written in publications such as USA Today, MMA Junkie, Sports Illustrated, MMAFighting.com, and now he is with The Athletic. He's also a co-host of a very well-done podcast, the co-main event podcast with Chad Dundas. We talk a little bit about that, but today we are talking about Ben's perspective on Strikeforce Carano versus Cyborg. Ben wrote a retrospective article on that really uh, important event uh, four or five years ago, and so we, we talk about his perspective and what that that event, what that fight itself meant to the sport of MMA, women's MMA, of course, but we really break it down. It's really good stuff. So I hope that you enjoy Ben's such a smart guy and, and we have a great time chatting. So I hope that you enjoy it. Without further ado, let's get to it. All right. On the line with us, we have Ben Folks. He's been covering MMA since 2006 for outlets such as USA Today, MMA Junkie, Sports Illustrated, MMAFighting.com, and now he's with the Athletic, always to me, one of the smartest journalists in MMA. I've, I've been reading his stuff for a long time. Very keen wit, always a, a strong point of view, very intelligent. Uh, in addition to his writing exploits, he also co-hosts the co-main event podcast with Chad Dun- Dundas, who's another uh, one of my favorites and whose book Champion of the World I recently bought at a dollar store. So uh, exciting stuff there. But w- welcome to the show, Ben. Appreciate you taking the time to be on. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I really enjoy Picturing the look on Chad's face when he hears that you found it in a dollar store. Was it actually I, I, a dollar? It was a dollar. And I, and I tweeted that to him and he's actually, he thanked me and retweeted it. So uh, yeah, it's sitting on my nightstand and it'll get read one of these days, but it's a really good, no, especially, uh, I mean, I know you're a pro wrestling fan. Anybody yeah. who's a pro wrestling fan will really enjoy that. One. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I recommend I, it. I wasn't sure that I was going to be into it and then cause it's a, you know, it's a historical novel. I don't read a lot of novels, but when I started reading, I was like, oh, yep, this is my, this is me. I, I definitely am going to read this. So yeah, I, I mean, Hey, he got his money at, at the front end, I'm sure. So I think he's, he's probably okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing right. Yeah. All right. Well, anyways, thanks again for, for joining us. So I, I, I brought you on because you wrote an article about four years ago, or I guess three and a half years ago uh, for MMA junkie slash us to USA today. And it was an historical look back at Strikeforce Corano versus Cyborg. And so I wanted to get you on the show to get your, your point of view on, on such, you know, such a historic milestone event. And, and so, uh, so let's, let's dive into that, but it marked that event itself, that fight marked the first time in history that two women were headlining a major MMA event. So obviously a big deal women headlining an MMA event today is not considered, you know, really a milestone moment anymore. Um, you know, they don't get as much attention as, as the men do as, as still, but there's been a lot of progress in that. But back in 2009, what did this mean to women's MMA and the sport as a whole? Yeah, well, you know, Scott Coker and, and Strikeforce over there in California were sort of early adopters, at least uh, in that part of the country of women's MMA. You know, Hook and Shoot uh, had been a, a big proponent of women's MMA and featured women's MMA bouts a lot. But then, you know, Strikeforce was one of the first like bigger shows to really make a go of it. Elite uh, XC had had put a lot of effort into Gina Carano and to really making her one of the centerpieces, you know, to the point at times it seemed even of heaping a little bit too much on her shoulders mm. uh, at times. Like just, if they were going to have a big show beyond CBS, be something, I uh, put something out there on TV. They wanted to make sure Gina Carano was a part of it, whether she was exactly ready for it or not. And when Strikeforce really started to build this thing, 
Gina Carano and Chris Cyborg were both those two figures where it seemed like everybody wants to see that fight. The It's the natural fight to make, but are they going to be able to make it? And one of the things that I remember about working on this story was talking to Gina Carano about it. And at least from her perspective, she said, you know, MMA always and, and fight sports in general, they always have those fights where it seems like these two people should absolutely fight. But if they don't have to, if it's a dangerous fight for either one of them, if they have other options, sometimes it doesn't get put together or it doesn't get put together until years too late. And she said that she didn't want this to be one of those. So when, when there was the opportunity to make this fight, which she knew like it's going to get a lot of attention, a lot of the people who don't normally pay attention to MMA in general or women's MMA more specifically, they will hear about this one and they will tune in. And she kind of felt like she owed it to the, the fight world to make this happen, to make this not be one of those that gets away. Yeah, I mean, it's you could see that the build was coming, but and and to be fair, you know, I the motivations for Gary Shaw and company promoting Gina. I mean, I, her looks obviously, you know, enter into that. Um, however, they do deserve credit for put you know promoting the women, and you got to say that Coker and company kind of stood on their shoulders and and built off of what they had already begun to build. So I think they should get some credit for it, whether their motivation was you know, as pure as, as, you know, we would like, we would like it to be, but um, you know, Gina was, was seven and oh, cyborg was seven and one, uh, you know, building up as stars, but not true superstars. So kind of give us an, an idea of where they were at in their careers beyond just uh, their record, as far as name recognition and, and where they are on the, you know, the spectrum of, of, you know, starting out to superstar kind of where were they at in their careers at that point? Yeah. Gina Carano had really, gotten noticed outside of MMA already at this point because she came up through Elite XC where you know she her she fought for Strike Force back in 2006 and then became really a focal point for Elite XC kind of 2007 and 2008 and she around that same time also was a crush on the American Gladiators reboot that they were doing for a while oh, she would show right. up as like yeah, right. like video game characters and things like that she was kind of the model for and so you could see People are starting to notice her and that she there other opportunities are starting to come for her. And that was one of the things that I think made it seem like maybe there was a risk that the fight wouldn't happen, even though it seemed like the logical one to make. Because, you know, even back then, it was no surprise to anybody that Cyborg was scary. You know, Cyborg, she, she was still relatively early on in her career. But when she went out there and got going, she put a hurting on people. And uh, people saw that just that raw power and that that ferocity that she brought and they kind of wondered, well, is, is anybody going to risk the meal ticket Gina Carano by putting her in there? And it, a lot of promoters, I think probably would have tried to avoid it, at least tried to avoid it for longer at least than waited. Strikeforce did. At least yeah. Waited, yeah. But I don't know, maybe there was a sense that Gina Carano one way or another won't be long for this sport that some other entertainment aspect of the world will come knocking and offer her a, a paycheck that doesn't involve getting punched in the face and just typically, we've seen that with a lot of fighters in, in MMA and boxing, when they get presented with opportunities to make a living that's a little easier and a little more lucrative, they, they often tend to go for it, at least try it out for a while. Right. Uh, and so it's, I guess, I think that that contributed a feeling of if you're going to make it, maybe you better go ahead and make it now rather than trying a slow build that never gets anywhere. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But in your article, you'd mentioned that, um, you know, it was just a couple of days later, 
after the fight, Gina was getting calls from, you know, from an agent, you know, for, for a movie that she ended up making. So it, that tends to, to make sense that that was, there was already starting to be doors that were, were opening there. So, but w- with the demise of, you, know, you have the IFL elite XC affliction, affliction closed out just a couple weeks before uh, Corona versus cyborg. In fact, um, one or one of the, or one or two of the fights or fighters got moved over to this, the strike force event. So there seemed to be a golden opportunity for Coker and strike force to, to capitalize and become a true competitor with UFC with, if this event draws the eyeballs, if they deliver inside the cage with an exciting fight, that this could be a differentiator for their product. Because at that point, a lot of people may not remember, but Dana White had said he would never, ever do women's women's MMA. So there's, this was an opportunity for Coker and company. And I think that they saw with that in mind, uh, you know, was there ever a real possibility that Strikeforce could rise to the level of being a true competitor? Did they rise? I, the finances, when I see the gates and the and the you know pay per view numbers and the ratings and stuff, it doesn't. It just seems to be not even close. I mean, UFC was drawing multi million dollar gates. This event drew, I think, it was seven hundred thirty seven thousand dollars. So it, it doesn't seem like there was competition there. But with this, was that ever a real possibility? I don't know, especially because in 2009, even more so than now, the the UFC was the sport in in a lot of people's minds. There were a lot of people who had who had heard of the UFC, but had never heard of the term MMA. Right. They, you know, when I was going around as a journalist back then, if you were talking to somebody on a plane and they're asking what you did, you say UFC first. Yeah. Being a publicist at that time, I always had to say, you know, UFC cage fighting MMA. I always would go in that order because they got it with UFC usually. Right. Yeah. And uh, they, if you say MMA, they give you that blank look and you have to say UFC and then like, okay, that's, that's what they think of as the name of the sport. Did did you ever go with human cockfighting? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if I've I've had a couple few drinks or something, I might tell you that. Yeah. I read about the human cockfighting. Thank you, John McCain. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, that was an argument that the UFC used to make all the time when, when somebody would say to Dana White, Oh, we hear that this sport is really growing rapidly and becoming very successful. And he would say, no, the UFC is becoming very successful. The UFC is growing rapidly and we are leading the sport and everybody else is just sort of swimming in our wake. And strike force had been around long enough and a player long enough that it's not like you could say, yeah, they just jump in here and try to make a quick buck. But it also seemed like even if you're in second place at the time, there's a huge gap between first and second. Mm. It's not like you're exactly nipping at the heels right there. Like the best you can kind of hope to offer was, okay, the UFC can only sign so many TV rights deals. If you want to get in on this MMA stuff and you have a TV network, you know, you need to come holler at Strike Force. You need to come talk to somebody else who can give you a good product. And to their credit, I mean, Scott Coker, much as the way he has done kind of with Bellator now, but he, he would find ways to, like you said, to sort of look and see what, what niches isn't the UFC filling? What isn't it offering fans that they might like to see? If you can't offer them a better version or like a more uh, prestigious or sought after version of what the UFC is doing, try to offer a different one that does something else. And, and this was a good example of that. Yeah. I, I mean, like the bottom line is, and we've seen it in, in pro wrestling that, you know, the, the Monday night wars and, and all of that stuff that it, it's great for competition. Competition is great for the business of whatever it is overall. But when it comes down to it, if the marketplace is big enough, you can have more than one option. You can have one dominant option. I mean, we're seeing that with WWE and AEW and some of the other players. Now there's enough to support 
everybody, but in the end, there's going to be true one true market leader. And it's not necessarily you're trying to topple them, but um, you know, it's, it's just trying to play within that same pool and survive and, and thrive and do well. So it's, you know, we, we talk about it on the podcast. It's like, you know, Oh yeah. Strike force was a competitor and, and that's brought up, but I, it's just, I just, the numbers don't really seem to match that up, but that's not necessarily the point of it either. So anyway, so that, that I appreciate your perspective on that makes sense, but let's, let's get back to the fight. So to me, this is just me, but watching these events sequentially, and we watched uh, Shamrock versus Diaz, which was the first strike force event after they acquired the Iliac CX assets. And they showed, especially during the cyborg Hitomi Akano fight, they showed Chrono on camera. I mean, it just seemed like every five seconds she was on camera to the point it was getting like voyeuristic and, and kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I mean, she, she would smile. And again, in your article, I saw like kind of a little bit of a nod to this, that um, she seemed kind of uncomfortable by it, but you know, would smile and kind of wave and, and all that. But to me, the difference between the look in her face before the fight and then after Cyborg just destroyed Akano, to me, there seemed to be a marked difference. And I thought she actually looked a little bit rattled um, just seeing that just absolute destruction in front of her. In, in your mind, was it a mental battle that was was lost even before she got in the cage? Did she ever really have a chance against Cyborg? What, what's your what are your thoughts on that? I, I think definitely. I think she would even tell you that it was a mental battle that she lost before the fight started. And she mentioned that that when I uh, interviewed her for the story, that there was a feeling of this is a different sort of fight than the other fights that I've done. And she felt like her body was reacting differently to the moment. You know, you're in that spotlight. It's not just that the opponent is scary, although I'm sure that's part of it, but that there's a very real sense that, okay, you are the star of the show now and everybody is looking to you. And this is going to be the, the moment that everybody remembers is how this one goes. And she sort of described feeling outside of herself. Like she was not really conscious of making decisions as the fight started. And as it was going on, uh, she was just sort of wowed by that, the, the enormity of the moment. And she said that at one point that, you know, Cyborg ended up on the ground and she looked down and saw herself, you know, briefly on top of Cyborg and feeling like, whoa, how did I do that? I don't, I don't really remember how we got here. And everything was just sort of happening to her and that she was not really actively making decisions in the fight and that i think everybody anybody who's been in some kind of athletics can kind of relate to that if you when you get in those those times where you just feel like you are completely blown away by the moment and and uh, like you're not totally in control of your own body and you're sort of looking down on yourself from above and i think that's kind of what she described going through and tough to beat anybody tough to tough, tough to win a cage fight that way really tough to beat chris cyborg if yeah. you're experiencing that and and she's not yeah it was uh yeah it's i i exactly basically i just don't think she really was was in the fight to begin with and just seemed overwhelmed by the moment and and that seemed to to be backed up by what happened but i mean it it did deliver uh the fight did deliver from a um an optic standpoint i mean it was a very exciting fight i was there you know live in person the crowd was electric it did for strike forces standards it draw drew a good crowd just under fourteen thousand tickets sold uh you know good ratings on showtime all that stuff so it was a successful fight in that sense and it really launched Cyborg into the, the national consciousness as far as MMA goes, um, for sure. However, Carano, for her part, she would never fight again. This would be the end. There was, I actually, doing my research for 
um, for the covering the, the Corona versus cyborg event on the podcast, I noticed that she actually was supposed to fight in 2011 again and wasn't cleared. I don't know any, any information about that. So I'm going to try to dig into that once we, we get to that point in the, uh, in the progression of the podcast, but she at the age of 27 was done. So what are your thoughts I mean, Matt, she's just getting into her physical prime. Uh, you know, where could she have gone? What What are your thoughts on on Carano never never stepping into MMA again? Well, it made sense when I heard it from her perspective because she described being really devastated by losing that fight and just feeling like she didn't put on a good showing and she let a lot of people down that, you know, the same thing fighters often go through where you have a whole team that prepares you for the fight and everything. And then afterwards you feel like, well, I'm sorry, guys, like I, did I just waste your time by having you help me for this fight? Mm-hmm. And she described dealing with some of that and that she left San Jose, drove down to San Diego with a friend of hers and was just kind of going to lick her wounds down there for a little while. And it was within a couple days that like an agent who she said she had previously talked to who didn't really sound that interested in her and it called up sounding suddenly very, very interested to say like Steven Soderbergh wants to talk to you. See, he, he wants to meet you and you know, he has a movie and she's had no idea who Steven Soderbergh was at the time. And so she didn't really <laughs> care. And then the agent was like, eh, you know, reeling off some of his credits and was like, uh, he did traffic, uh, the Michael Douglas, Benicio del Toro movie. And she was like, Whoa, okay. I love that movie. Like, let me, let me meet with this guy. And I think that part of it at least is you're feeling really disappointed coming off of one thing somebody else comes to you and says like, Hey, you could do this other thing, which, you know, might pay better, might not involve, you know, you getting punched in the face on TV while people yell at you. Uh, Just, and it it gives you a chance to rebound in a different way. It gives you like another version of your life that you could maybe live instead of thinking like, how am I going to go get revenge on cyborg? Uh, it, It feels like if you're in, if you're depressed in one of those moments, it's got to be one of the two, right? Either you tell yourself you're getting right back in the gym and we're going to train to beat Cyborg or somebody else offers you something else like that. And I could see how you'd be like, you know what? That sounds pretty good. Let me, let me go try and do that. I also think she mentioned that once she had reached a certain level, it got difficult to just go into a gym and just be part of the team and disappear into that training and not think about anything else that you had to worry about. Uh, who are your training partners? Are they going to be kind of telling tales out of school about you? Because people are going to want to hear about how Gina Carano looks in the gym. If you can light her up in sparring, maybe you go around and you talk about how you just beat up Gina Carano in the gym. Like you're not going to be able to just live life like any other fighter at that point, you know, which I think a lot of fighters have experienced and that that served as an additional barrier to kind of getting back in because how do you, where do you train? Where do you go that you, where you feel comfortable and you feel like you can trust everybody. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, the men- the mental side really seemed to enter into it for her, whether it was being in the cage or out. So that 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 tends to track with that. So looking back at, I mean, Cyborg, you know, gone on to be, you know, basically the greatest female fighter of all time, except for now maybe maybe Amanda Nunez, um, but still, you know, I think you'd be hard to not place her as the most important fighter. I mean, the first she won the you know Strike Force, Invicta, UFC, and Bellator belts. I mean, no one else has come even close to that, but between the two of them, you know, where does that, where does this fight now stand in MMA history, not just women's MMA, but MMA history as a whole. And then those two fighters, uh, Carano and Cyborg, where do they, where do they stand in, in MMA history as well? I think that this was the first fight to show us a really that, that women's MMA can produce a sort of mega fight that has that big fight feeling that it's not just 
that's not a, just a territory of the men. And we've seen it now many times since then. And now we don't even think about that question. But at the time in 2009, I think that there were also always going to be people who are like, oh, you know, women's MMA is a sideshow. And I think Dana White was probably one of those people. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, Gina Carano's fight with uh, Julie Kedzi at uh, that Elite XC event uh, back in 2007, that was a big one to kind of show like, okay, it, it was a big one for introducing people to women's MMA and, and getting them interested. This was the first one that it felt like there was a huge build and it was these two sort of titans of the, the field at the same time right there in their primes and they're going to go at it and we're going to build the entire show around it. But I remember really distinctly before this fight, I was talking to a manager at the time and we were talking about it and he was like, you know, Cyborg is just going to crush Gina Carano. And I was like, you know, probably, but Gina Carano, the, she's a good stand-up fighter. She's a good athlete. She, this was, if, if there's somebody who has the kind of skill set that maybe they're going to match up with Chris Cyborg, maybe she can, she can, if she can get through the first round, uh, she could play this game a little bit. And I remember him telling me a story about watching Chris Cyborg uh, cut weight for a, a previous bout. And he said that she was pretty close, but having a hard time getting the last few pounds off. And what she did was pulled up highlights of her opponent or some YouTube video of her opponent fighting, and then just started to walk around getting mad and like <laughs> spitting in a cup and just making like, like angry noises, like as she was watching her and thinking about her. And he was like, I was watching her and I was getting afraid for my safety. <laughs> and I saw her then. And I thought, you know what, whoever has to face this person, you better do it now before she yeah. gains any more experience and technical ability because a, a few fights from now, she's going to be an absolute monster. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah. I'll mention, um, I'd read an article that it, where they'd interviewed Vanderlei Silva before this Corona cyborg fight. And Vanderlei was saying like, you can't, you know, when you train with girls, you tend to try to take it easy or, you know, you don't go full boys. Like if you do that with her, she, she trains with men. She'll knock you out. And, and just talking about what a terror she was. And I'm like, if Vanderlei is saying that, <laughs> you know, if Vanderlei is saying that, yeah, yeah. Not I, easily intimidated, I would think, no, about Vanderlei. No, yeah. no. So, yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, it's 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 crazy how well the fight did and, and how this, again, kind of launched just them in separate careers and, you know, separate, completely separate directions. Um, which is, and again, you looking back and I had not realized Gina's four months older than me. I had, when I saw, you know, all the unfortunate recent news with the Mandalorian and all that sort of thing, I was like, she's my age. Like she could have been fighting these last, you know, 12 years if she wanted to, and who knows where she'd be or, uh, you know, 11 years, yeah, 12 years, who knows where she'd be, you know, at this point as a fighter, but, and I would, you know, they tried to put together, uh, Carano versus Ronda, you know, Ronda Rousey. And I think it was 2014 and Dana sent that unfortunate text to the wrong person. It went to Gina and that scuttled that, you know, that whole situation. Cause that could have been another mega fight. And, you know, she's kind of kept her toe in a little bit, but, uh, but, you know, obviously cyborgs eclipsed her. So um, I did want to ask about your, your articles and, and your podcast. So tell us about uh, what you're doing for the athletic and then your, your podcast is with Chad as well and where people can find your work. If they want to get in touch, find you on social, all that stuff. Yeah, you can find me over there at The Athletic. Uh, me and, and Sean Alshadi are the MMA writers over at The Athletic and, and trying to churn out good content for people there. Uh, and we've also got a subscription sign-up special for people who new subscribers can get in for a dollar a month right now. It's just, mm. you know, something to think about. Yeah, um, yeah I do the, the co-main event podcast with uh, Chad Dundas. We're at co-main event.com and wherever you get your podcasts. 
we do a free Monday podcast each week, but then we also do a ton of other stuff on our Patreon. We have a Wednesday live chat movie club. We actually, our movie club this week is free to all where we discuss predator, uh, an absolute triumph in film, uh, the 1987 Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Uh, so yeah, you know, swing by, check us out, uh, patreon.com slash co-main event. If you want to check out the, uh, the movie club and see what else we have to offer there, it's, it's a good time. All right. And your, uh, Twitter, Twitter handle at Ben folks, MMA. Okay. F O W L K E S. All right. Awesome. All right. A couple more questions and we'll, we'll let you get out of here, but any, any, just as a, not even necessarily as a journalist, maybe as a fan, but are there any particular moments in strike force that stand out to you, whether inside the cage or outside of the cage, anything that really just jumps out in your mind when you think of strike force? Yeah. Well, when I think of it, especially as a journalist who went out and covered quite a few strike force events, they always had a, a certain kind of feel and it was a different feel than going to UFC events. Like the UFC really quickly became this well-oiled machine where it was going to be the same sort of every time. And they really tightly controlled as on during fight week, here's what days the press conferences and then workouts and then there's weigh-ins and they really controlled where you went, what you saw. And you had to really try hard as a journalist to break out of that and get to cover anything else other than what everybody else was doing. And strike force events were always just a little bit different. And especially it felt like, okay, you're always in San Jose. They're at the old HP pavilion. Uh, They changed the name now. I can't remember what the, is it the SAP center now? SAP center. Yeah. Yeah. But, and you know, everybody would be staying at the same downtown San Jose hotels. You'd go to like uh, original famous rays or whatever the the Italian joint it was. Original Joe's. Original Joe's. That's it. Where the waiters are all in tuxedos and stuff. And and you just, (laughs) you know, you you could just post up there, uh, eat a meatball and drink a wine and watch as like all these MMA people come through one at a time through the night and everybody's there. And strike force events just always kind of had that, that different sort of feel to them. And the, 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 now the SAP center, but the HP pavilion before it was a fun place to see fights and they would yeah. get good crowds in there. And they built up a really good local fan base that knew to like what kind of a show to expect from them and, and really got into the fighters that they had. And especially when it seemed like strike force hit a point where it was like, okay, we're going to make a, a play for some of these big free agents, you know, guys like Fedor and, and stuff like that. And it felt like this, the, the attention to the events jumped up a notch or two. And I remember watching Fedor walk out the night where he, he lost to Fabricio Verdun, oh, you know, and he's walking broke out my there. Heart. <laughs> broke my heart that night. Yeah. The, the Russian music is playing everything, you know, and you're thinking like, okay, I remember Fabricio Verdun all that week had just been, you'd see him in the hotel and he was constantly, it seemed just screwing around like him and his, his cornermen, his coaches, they were just like, like literally playing grab ass in the lobby and running around. You're like, does this guy know he's going to get wrecked by Fedor, the unbeatable Russian uh, destroying machine at the end of this week. And then he went out there and beat him. And the, the, my favorite thing about it was afterwards you, you could see him. He partied the way <laughs> I would party if I somehow <laughs> magically beat Fedor. You know? Like he, he, he didn't just be like, Hey, I, I'm gonna act like I've been there before. No big deal. Just another fight. Like he partied, like he had been named King of the world and it was awesome. <laughs> I, it was great to see. <laughs> that's a, that's a, I mean, it's not a great memory for me. I was there and I'm just such a huge Fedor fan. I, I just, that I was, I remember standing and putting my hands over my face on this. Like, I think I was in the media section that night and, just stood up. It's like, Oh my God, what just happened? And just like the, like, 
I called it like a hushed roar that went yeah. over, you know, the crowd, like, just like, it was like, what, what just happened? And then well, start hearing the reaction. Well, it was like one of those finishes where it seemed like it, it almost looked like he dropped uh, Fabrizio. I think he kind of slipped more trying yeah. to avoid the punch yeah. and then Fedor followed him down there. And it was like, okay, you're going to throw up a triangle off your back on Fedor. I guess. Yeah, like, oh, sure. How many guys have tried to do that? And he just slipped out and just like pasted him with right hands on yeah. The yeah and but then there's just a moment where you go oh wait a minute yeah. he might be in trouble wait a minute and his then... head's turning bright red no <laughs> yeah. no no but this is fedor i remember seeing his head turning bright red and i'm like no 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 this is fedor anybody else i'd be like oh this is done but i'm like no this is fedor and he will get out of this so yeah and he had been in those sort of little moments before where you'd be like oh it looks like he's in a little bit of trouble but then he always always got out always was fine always won and so it, it didn't seem like it was going to be anything until suddenly you see him tap and it was just just like oh my god i can't yeah. believe that actually happened yeah and, I, I, and then next thing you know fabricio verdum is backstage partying with forrest whitaker <laughs> i didn't even know he was there that's awesome no you can find the pictures if you google like okay it's like fabricio verdum and a team of brazilians are all like jumping up and down singing songs and yell, yelling and celebrating and forrest whitaker is standing in the middle of them with a look on his face like i don't even know how i got here <laughs> that's awesome well, there it was. Those shows were fun. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Is I, I always had a good time. I, I went to tons of Strike Force events. Pretty much everyone that was in San Jose since I lived there, and then worked for the company for a while. And I just, they were always so much fun. I love doing. I, I, I miss the. I miss the promotion. So, with with that in mind, final question. We'll let you go. What is Strike Force's place in MMA history as as a promotion? Where do they stand? Uh, you know, it's weird. As more time goes by, I. I wonder if we'll remember it as a certain kind of MMA of a time period, like sort of the way that we think of affliction where it's like, Oh man, not just the, the show, but the shirts. And yeah. you think of it oh, as God. like, that was a snapshot of like one <laughs> thing that we were doing real, real quick. I saw uh, Josh Thompson shared a picture on Twitter of him and Fitch and Koscheck And uh, I want to, I want to say Kane all in like their, that style, that old affliction, extreme couture, you know, from like 2009 or whatever. And I was just like, God, what a like, what a snapshot of just how nasty. <laughs> like, yeah. everybody had those. But yeah, anyway, sorry, go ahead. But yeah, I remember that. Just T-shirts that look like they're going to set off a metal detector. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, Strike Force was around for much longer, and was less of like a one blip in time kind of a thing, uh, and yet it was also. I, the more time we get away from it, the more it seems like it was like of a time. I remember that 2009, 2010, 11 sort of strike force time. And I don't know, it, it, it makes you wonder, will we look back on it as here's what it was before the UFC got such a unshakable stranglehold on it. It's hard now not to look back on it and see it as a precursor to what some of the stuff that Scott Coker is doing with Bellator now, uh, I don't, it, it's hard to really kind of sum it up, but at the time, especially coming up in California and it was one of those where it was like trying to prove, you know what, yeah, you have a home base that you can operate out of. You might go to a few other cities, but you, you're right here in California. You kind of born here and you've built up a, a local audience here, uh, fighters that a lot of fighters who came out of that area and everything. And it just felt like a very unique thing that you maybe couldn't happen now maybe yeah. maybe you wouldn't see the same thing be able to to arise out of the current mma landscape yeah it feels like the sport maybe has grown up too much you know for for that type of promotion at this point yeah so. yeah 
but I did, uh, I just did just Google uh, Fabricio and Forrest. And there's a really cool picture of Forrest, like you said, surrounded by all these Brazilians and he's kind of smiling. And it's, he definitely sticks out <laughs> in yeah. comparison to all the guys he's surrounded by. So. Well, I remember too, sitting in that press conference and, and Fedor you know, showed up to the press conference and was answering questions and uh, was, you know, being a real sportsman about it. And they had to keep stepping out in the hallway to ask Fabrizio and his team to, to quiet down. Quiet they're, down. they're singing <laughs> songs and making all kinds of noise. And it's like, yeah, they are not in a quieting down kind of mood. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, Ben, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. You tell, uh, tell Chad that if I don't like his book, I'm coming for my dollar though. So just okay, sure, sure fair enough. Along. But appreciate you taking the time to be on Inside the Hexagon and uh, best of luck. And uh, fans, make sure you go check out the co-main event podcast as well as Ben's writing on The Athletic. But, but thanks again, Ben. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, I want to thank my very special guest, Ben Folks, for taking the time to join us on the show today. It was great connecting with him, talking about Carano versus Cyborg, breaking down the historical significance for both women's MMA and MMA overall, talking about the aftermath for both fighters. So make sure uh, that you check out his writings for The Athletic, as well as his podcast, The Co-Main Event Podcast, alongside Chad Dundas, another great MMA journalist. So make sure you check all of that out. Also, make sure you check out our upcoming episodes. We are going to, in our next event episode, be covering the Strikeforce debut for the heavyweight goat, Fedor Emelianenko. He takes on Brett Rogers. It is Strikeforce, Fedor versus Rogers. I'm excited to cover this. Gegard Mousasi is on the card. Fabricio Verdun is back. Uh, we also see the Strikeforce debut of Antonio Bigfoot Silva, who would later take on Fedor as well. And then the co-main event features Jake Shields taking on Jason Mayhem Miller for the vacant strike force middleweight title. This is an action packed card. I can't wait to cover it. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, what is also going to be a lot of fun is some of the upcoming interview guests that we've got no names to reveal at the moment. Cause we're still getting things locked down, but we've got some cool stuff coming up. And speaking of cool stuff, make sure you check us out on social media and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at the hexagon pod. And you can reach me at phil at inside the hexagon.com. I would love to hear from you. And then also we are going to be joining the evergreen podcast network. I am really excited about this. This is a great group of, of shows, great people behind the scenes. So there's going to be more information on that coming up. Nothing's really going to change other than just the quality of the show overall. I think it's going to help raise things. And I think you're going to enjoy what we're doing even more so. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. 
Yeah, yeah, right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.